Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In this edition, we visit with Eric Herm, a fourth-generation farmer in northwest Texas, about 100 miles south of Lubbock, who is transitioning the family farm from a farm where chemicals were used to an organic farm. Eric Herm is the author of Son of a Farmer, Child of the Earth, A Path to Agriculture's Higher Consciousness. He's also concerned about the use of GMOs, genetically modified organisms, and recently returned from a march that ended in front of the White House in Washington, D.C., protesting the wide use of genetically modified organisms. I spoke with Eric Herm by phone on October 24, 2011, from his home near Ackerley, Texas, and asked him to begin by describing his recent trip to Washington, D.C. I joined up with the Right to Know March uh, north of Baltimore, Maryland this past week. They'd begun to march in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, It was a 300-and-some-odd-mile journey to Washington, D.C. to demand the labeling of GMOs. That was one of President Obama's promises before he was elected to get GMOs labeled. And that's what we were searching for and hoping to attain to not only educate more Americans on this subject matter, but to make a stand there in front of the White House. Uh, I'm finding out that 90% of Americans really have no idea what GMOs are. Uh, There's over 50 countries across the world that have them labeled or absolutely banned from their country. And yet Canada and America are the two only the two industrial nations that have neither of those. Um, I got to speak in front of the White House. It was cool. We didn't have the numbers that, you know, we would really like in this movement. And that's that's where we're constantly trying to beat this drum to let more people realize that we're eating food that was constructed in a laboratory, that we're eating seeds that are injected with the genes of herbicides, pesticides, and other organisms. Uh, there's more research, more money being directed for more for more foods. Genetically modified salmon is being released on the wild now, or about to be. They have genetically modified trees displaced in forests all across the country. We continue to be guinea pigs to this experiment, and there's only now in the last few years research coming out of the detrimental long-term effects of GMOs, not only on us, but livestock, insects, the soil, uh, everything in nature. So you would it be fair to say that you would characterize it as getting out of control? Oh, it's, it's completely out of control. You're talking about 90% of corn, cotton, canola, and soybeans, and I believe even sugar beets now are genetically modified. And most of the processed foods, you're talking 70 80% of processed foods have genetically modified ingredients in them. You're talking about cereals, snacks, sodas, everything that kids and a lot of people put in their bodies on a daily basis. And it's altering our genetic code. How do you know it's altering our genetic code? Well, there was a study just released. This was a doctor in Japan. Don't ask me to pronounce his name. But saying how this is basically when we put food into our bodies, it's like a computer program being run. You know, it's like downloading software, and it's embedding upon our our DNA, our RNA, and it's altering 
our genetic makeup, you know, because this is this is foreign or toxic substances that are implanted into the seeds. And I'm not the best person to describe this on a scientific manner, but I'm a naturalist. And the bottom line is we're eating poison. You know, you're looking at mammals that they've done tests on everything from mice up to cows, and it's causing stomach lesions. It's causing shrinkage of organs from their brains to testicles, uh, more higher cancer rates. Uh, and we're we're the ones that we're the ones being tested on as well. But unfortunately, there's not enough studies out here in America. Most of these studies come from overseas. From my personal perspective, I see the world with an evolutionary point of view. And I would take into that such things as uh, natural disasters, which uh, changed the world. The story of the meteorite that came into the Yucatan and is assumed to have ended the life of dinosaurs and substantially changed the way we live. And I'm wondering if what you're talking about now is not just another evolutionary aspect of what's going on among the human species, perhaps in a way to counter the population. The reports are that there will be about 7 billion human beings in the world in the next month or so by the end of November of 2011. I'm wondering what your personal reaction is to that. Well, there's certainly studies that back that philosophy. They say that when three consecutive generations of mammals consume a purely genetically modified diet that they become barren or sterile. There are higher sterility rates in livestock now and even a lot of reports coming out that animals are carrying uh, their babies throughout but then they're even having uh, deaths during the birth or they're delivering unborn uh, creatures in the fetus. And so I think there's a lot of merit to what you suggest. It appears that this food is definitely lowering our fertility rates. Um, and if that's purely to contain the population, uh, there's got to be better methods that we can implement other than trying to contaminate and poison people through our own food system. But uh, it blows my mind, really, when you try to get to the bottom of it. Uh, just why this stuff is happening in this country. Eric, tell us a little bit about your background and, and growing up. Well, I grew up on a farm. I'm a fourth-generation farmer, but uh, like a lot of young people, I didn't want to stay on the farm. Uh, I kinda, The older I got in my teens, I became less enchanted with it. Uh, my dad got to be a really big farmer when I was in college, and we became kind of more like a a factory farm, not a fact. We're not a factory farmer. We we were not, but we, the operation got so big that that's kind of how I felt. We were just in a frantic pace all summer, and so I got my degree in broadcast journalism and actually went into sports broadcasting and uh, did some other things. Traveled around, worked in other places like Colorado and Alaska, and traveled overseas and got to experience other cultures, other foods see how people live life and really was just taking everything in stride and and before I moved, moved back to the farm in 2005 and really felt that connection uh, to the farm once again you know I allowed my relationship with nature to cultivate and grow and expand but 
when I came back home, I was almost taken back by that connection to the farm here and have decided to stay and still here and trying to uh, continue to grow with it. So how big is your farm? What do you grow? Cotton is our main crop. Uh, We're in a very arid climate here, so we're limited with what we can grow, and we're not irrigated land at all. Uh, We'll grow some other things like maize, sunflowers, wheat, uh, black-eyed peas, rotate some other crops in. Uh, But we've been in a major, major drought here for about 14 months, and so we had nothing growing this year, so it's been a very challenging year. And and how many acres do you cultivate? Over 6,000. What I'm interested in about your book, Son of a Farmer, Child of the Earth, are your reflections on what you wrote in the period of time it's been since your book has come out and you're no longer engaged in the writing? My reflections are pretty much exactly the same what I wrote, but I think that we need to reach more people not just inside of agriculture, but particularly outside of agriculture, what's going on with with the production of our food, with our relationship with nature. For the most part, people are just kind of going through their lives in their own little world, and we're really segregated and disconnected from nature. And that's really one thing that I, I try to get across in the book, but I think is even more important for, for people to understand that Really, it is our our direct relationship with nature that's going to not only really free us, but allow us to be able to be who we are meant to be and allow a lot more things to happen in their natural state as opposed to trying to manipulate or dominate or even ignore what's going on in nature. When you say we're losing the connection with nature, uh, how would you describe that connection? What is nature in the context that you're telling us about? Well, nature is an extension of us. It is who we are, and we are an extension of nature. To me, it's just really a thread that combines the two together. I I look at everything as really one thing, but yet we consider ourselves either separate or even possibly superior to nature. I think we're we're a little bit arrogant uh, in our position of where we are because we're so comfortable and everything is so easy and convenient. To me, it's just really seeing ourselves as an aspect of nature. That's what nature is. So when you say we are an extension of nature, who is the we? The human species or all uh, mammals and and reptiles on uh, the earth? Yeah, all of us. I mean, I look at animals as, you know, basically the nervous system of the planet. You you know, they're able to tell us what's going on. They have that sixth sense. You know, they can sense changes in the weather or or something that's happening. Maybe they can see it or hear it or just feel it. You know, I look at the the soil as the digestive system. Uh, I think that we're really the, uh, the walking, talking, collective consciousness of the earth, but we're not in touch with that for the most part, we've lost our sixth sense um, because we're bogged down with a lot of unnecessary stress. Uh, a lot of it's just the, the grind of the, the reality that we've created in today's society. 
uh, you look at everything, insects, everything is, is an extension or has its role in nature, and we're no different. So what do you think brought about the disconnect that you're talking about? I, I think it was gradual. I, I think a lot of it is attributed to the concept of convenience, whether you look at the Industrial Revolution early on in the 1900s, uh, we just became more part of, of a factory or, you know, the, the mechanized concepts of living. And then as it progressed through the 1900s, we became more reliant on progression in the form of technology or more uh, contraptions that we were building that really kind of built a wall between us and nature, the way cities are constructed. You look at that and you put up a thousand houses that look identical and you have the token tree and shrub displaced here and there. Houses are five times the size of everything else and then you got a little bitty lawn in the back, you know, in your lot and it's manicured landscape, you know, that look like golf courses instead of really anything that the way nature is. Uh, and you look at agriculture, commercial agriculture, we are, we've created a monocrop system that is complete defiance of what nature is. Nature is diverse. Nature is rich in multiple plants and species. And we have trained ourselves to become one-trick ponies that plays into the this factory mentality, you know, an assembly line type of production where it's more quantity and less quality. And in the process, we've sacrificed uh, a lot of the life, a lot of the vitality, and also our our relationship with nature. So what's your suggestion, recommendation to deal with these complexities or contradictions might be a better way of describing it? By spending more more time and energy in nature, you know, if you have to wake up 15 or 20 minutes earlier in the day, uh, to really just find a place nearby, if it's your house, you've got a favorite tree you like to uh, hang out around, or if you garden, spend more time gardening to take walks in the park, uh, to get to know your food that you're eating, and that means getting to know the farmers growing it. I really suggest people support their local food production and establish relationships, whether it's farmers markets, CSAs, pick your own gardens, whatever's going on in your community. And I think it needs to start in the school systems. There needs to be curriculum that gets these young people more involved in nature because kids respond to this. It's They're so much happier outdoors, but instead we're closing them up in these windowless institutions and throwing them face right into a textbook and a computer and completely... Uh, you know, segregating them from nature. You know, let's get kids out in the nature more and allow them to be a part of nature and learn more of our connection. The way you've described education, windowless schools away from nature, was that your experience? We had one window per classroom in elementary, and then you got into junior high and high school, and there was there were no windows to even look out of your classroom. I hated it. Um, you know, I was one of those kids. I would finish my work, and I would just be sitting there looking at these brick walls. And even when you get to college, it was the same thing. You go into these rooms, there's you're just in this cell, almost like a prison cell. And 
I just didn't function well that way. I didn't learn well that way, even though my grades were okay. Uh, school was just something I I couldn't make a whole lot of sense out of. And I I see it in my in my kid. My oldest child is five years old, and he's so much more engaged and so much happier and healthier when he's able to be outdoors and express himself and learn more just about what we got growing in the garden or just trees or animals, wildlife. Um, there's a school in Santa Barbara I know that does this, the Santa Barbara Middle School that got into this and really took it to another level. What years were you in high school and college? So that would have been late 1980s through the mid-90s. I graduated college in 1997, graduated high school in 92. What was the magnet that brought you back to your um, home, to the family farm? I presume when it's a, it's a family farm that your family has cultivated for four generations. Well, originally I just wanted to come back and help out my dad for a couple of years. His parents were in bad health and uh, there were some trying times and it was hard to keep employees out here on the farm, lost a lot of guys to the oil field, so I wanted to help him out, and uh, when I came back, it just grabbed hold of me, and I knew this was where I needed to be. I knew we needed more young farmers. I saw the challenges ahead, but I felt it was um, where I needed to be and, and what I needed to be doing. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Eric Herm from his home near Ackerley, Texas, located about 100 miles southwest of Lubbock, Texas. And Eric Herm is the author of Son of a Farmer, Child of the Earth, A Path to Agriculture's Higher Consciousness. Eric, a little while ago when we were talking, you said something about who we are meant to be in relationship to human beings' connection to nature. How would you describe what we are meant to be? In my opinion, we are the higher consciousness of the earth. I mean, we're the flesh and bone guardian angels of, of not only just the soil, but this planet. And we have this blessing, this unique opportunity to experience things on so many different levels, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and be able to communicate this. And I think we're very, very blessed individuals. We are so unique, but we're not reaching our utmost potential. We're not being who we are meant to be or who we can be because we're sidetracked right now. We are very sidetracked with a lot of a lot of the grind of a day-to-day life. And I think nature is our gateway to get back to that because it just allows you to relax more. It calms you down, it grounds you, and it reconnects you almost like plugging into an electrical outlet. And I think that it allows a lot of that stress to fade away. It it clears the mind and helps balance you. And by reconnecting to us being a higher consciousness of the planet, planet, it allows us to really go about our daily activities at a completely different level. You refer again to what we are meant to be. So my question is, 
What is that? What are we meant to be? The short answer is love. And as cheesy as that might sound to some people, I mean, that's really the easiest way that I could describe it. How would that manifest on a material plane here on the earth? What would it look like? That's a good question. I would really like to see it, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I think it'll, it may mean different things for different people, but for the most part, I think it would change immediately with our relationship in nature, and that meaning that I think that by centering our lives, our communities, our neighborhoods around aspects of nature, and to me that is through food production, because that is our fuel, that is in essence the fiber of our being. In today's world, we're basically eating carbon copies of food. You get into things like genetically modified foods. We're putting the lowest grade fuel in our tanks. And I think it's keeping us at a very low frequency. It's keeping us out of balance. You know, we're, we're unhealthy. A lot of, uh, a lot more issues with neurological issues, such as autism in children. You're looking at diabetes at all-time high, cancers. But when we start changing our relationship with food and food production, I think that that revolutionizes it revolutionizes who we are. And I'm not saying we're going to be walking around in this utopia or everyone, the eight, you know, this is the age of Aquarius. I'm saying that that would begin the transformation for us internally, that we would have that tight-knit relationship with nature through food production and through just being being closer to nature that way. Because, you know, you look at the way towns are constructed, nature's not really welcome, but if you're putting gardens and uh, orchards and everything right in the heart of everything, I, I think that that would really start the change. What changes could you make on your farm to develop uh, the concepts that you were just telling us about? Well, I, I've been trying for the last several years and have done them. Uh, we've been limited with rainfall or lack thereof. But just really crop rotation, a healthy crop rotation. Uh, I've got 250 acres in the organic transition right now. I'm trying to get – that's my goal. My dream is to have all of our acres that I touch over the next five to ten years be completely organic and getting away from chemicals. We don't do any GMOs. We don't do pesticides. We use all organic fertilizers. Uh, I think by becoming less dependent on machinery and, imp and implementing things such as small orchards and other crops that are perennial, uh, we've planted soaps and acres in grass, trying to do some controlled grazing with animals. We're really just in the early stages of this transition on our farm, but we've made significant strides, but... I'm hoping to make even more strides in the near future, but I can't do it without the rainfall, and that's that's probably the biggest challenge we have in our area, especially now with this drought. Are you the person who makes the final decisions on uh, the operation of your farm? My dad and I do together. So he's still actively involved? Yes, yep. In your book son of a farmer, child of the earth, you talk about the importance of legalizing hemp 
Could you uh, tell us why you think that's important? Because hemp is such a valuable plant on so many levels, not just in nature, but economically in this country. Uh, it's, it's so useful as far as being able to make clothing, being able to make fuel, being able to make different soaps and uh, shampoos, all kinds of cool products that are made out of hemp, not to mention ropes and uh, other cloth material. It's also very economical because of what it could do for farming. I mean, there are many areas in this country where hemp would thrive, and it also helps. It acts as a natural herbicide to certain weeds. And so it would be great to work into crop rotation for a lot of farmers, which was done in this country up until the 1940s, like 1937 when the Marijuana and Hemp Act came through that really made it impossible for most farmers to grow because of the excessive taxation. It's the genetic connection to marijuana that's scary to some. I get that, but <laughs> there's so much stuff put out about marijuana that was so far-fetched, you know, starting with the propaganda movies of, you know, if you smoke a joint, you're going to go out and kill somebody and commit crimes and do this and that, and it really blows my mind, but when you study the the history of how all that went down and the the convenience of how the getting hemp and, and marijuana illegal benefited people like DuPont who came out with uh, their plastics. You know, they came out with nylon the next year, and they make millions and millions of dollars off of selling products like nylon and other little plastic contrivances. The, the same thing could be done with hemp. That was just another example of man interfering with nature so that people can make money as opposed to us utilizing an aspect of nature that has worked for thousands and thousands of years. Well, Eric Herm, author of Son of a Farmer, Child of the Earth, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about a eureka or an aha moment that you remember that changed your life? Probably, you know, before I, before I moved back to the farm, you know, I was at a point where I'd I was like, what am I going to do next in my life? Just kind of uh, really pondering what I was going to do next. And I came home. I'd done some painting, uh, some some houses, and just went out in the field and just laid down for I don't know how long I was there, and just meditating. And that was really the moment in my life that I felt the farm calling out to me and, and made the decision that I was going to move back to the farm uh, and that's probably really what changed my life more than anything because that's definitely opened up uh, so many doors and propelled me down a, a much different path than I was on before. Maybe you just answered the next question, which is, what would you like to do with the remainder of your one precious life? The remainder of my life to continue to be someone who's able to communicate the importance of our relationship with nature to instill in others that that's really the only way that we're going to be able to change things for the better is by improving our relationship with nature. And finally, Eric Herm, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? One that comes to my mind is The Unsettling of America by Wendell Berry. I just finished that book earlier this year, and 
it was written in 1977, and it's it's both amazing and and somewhat sad how more true the words that he wrote are even more poignant today. Eric Kerm, author of Son of a Farmer, Child of the Earth, A Path to Agriculture's Higher Consciousness. Thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thanks for having me. Eric Herm is the author of Son of a Farmer, Child of the Earth, A Path to Agriculture's Higher Consciousness. The book that Eric Herm recommends is Unsettling of America, Culture and Agriculture by Wendell Berry. This interview was recorded on October 24, 2011. All Radio Curious programs are free at our website, radiocurious.org. Our phone is 707-462-6541. Email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Anastad is our associate producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>